India was one of the most developed regions in the world in the 18th century. It was richer than either Europe or China. India has some of the most fertile land in the world, a large population, and a hub for trade between Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and East Asia. It has almost everything it needs within its own borders. If India was an industrialized country like in North America, Western Europe, or East Asia, its economy would be about $80 trillion, about the same as the entire world economy in 2020. So how is it possible that in only 250 years, India went from the wealthiest region in the world to one of the poorest regions in the world? It began in 1757. India at this time was a collection of kingdoms and empires who fought over control of their part of the world, similar to what Europeans and Mesoamericans did. During a civil war in Bengal Subha, the rebellion asked the British East India Company for help. This company was mainly interested in trading with the world, mostly owned small forts or ports, and its army was assigned to protect their trade interests. But now they were asked to help in a rebellion. The rebellion was successful, and the British East India Company was able to put a puppet on the throne of Bengal, meaning that the leader of Bengal had to do whatever the British told him to do, or else the British would put someone else on the throne. And so the British suddenly realized they could repeat this process to conquer all of the Indian subcontinent, and they did. Over the next century, they would give the Indian rulers a choice. Join the British and hold on to power, or resist the British and get conquered. Many decided to remain in power as British puppets, gaining access to the British trade network, positions of power for their children, and some of the best education of its time. And so, India became a political mess, where different regions were under different types of administration, with many of the previous rulers staying in power. And all that kept it together was the threat that Great Britain could send in their advanced military to put down any rebellion. Until the people tried something else. Non-cooperation. If the people stopped working, the British wouldn't earn a profit, and eventually the occupation of India would be too costly. This strategy worked, and by 1947, India became an independent country. This new and independent India faced many problems. The first problem was to keep the country together. India had been unified five times earlier and each time it fell apart again. And to many, this process appeared to already be happening in 1947. The British Indian colony had been split up into various countries. Pakistan, Sikkim, Bhutan, Nepal, the Maldives and India itself. It was not unreasonable to assume that more regions would split off to form their own country, such as happened in Pakistan in 1971 when Bangladesh became an independent nation apart from Pakistan. About half of India was ruled through princely states, where princes held on to power and not the central government. And now that the British army was leaving India, there was no reason for any of the princes to stay with India. In essence, upon independence, India was confronted with the problem that they had a country without a functional government. And so the Indian central government needed a reason 
for the individual regions to stay with India. And the reason they decided to go with was money. India was going to invest in infrastructure across the country, connecting the various regions together so that it was easier to trade. The rich and powerful earned money through owning businesses or taxing businesses. So, if those businesses were able to sell to more Indians, that meant more money for the rich and powerful. And so the elites would want to stay with India to increase their own wealth. This is a process which India is still undergoing today, with large parts of Indian economic growth coming from increased trade within India itself. India is a diverse country. There are 122 languages spoken by at least 1 million people. There are various cultures spread across the nations and customs ranging wildly between regions. And by investing in infrastructure, these people would become more connected. They will move to other parts of the country, meet new people and learn about their own nation. After several generations, the people will no longer think of themselves as belonging to a particular region, but to a single nation. In fact, this is a process a lot of countries have gone through. France, Germany and Italy began this process in the 19th century, and they still face the problem of regionalism. Such as Bavaria, where one-third of the population supports independence from Germany. But India started this process only 70 years ago, and for the first couple of decades of independent India, it had to spend a significant amount of money to create an India where Indians felt like Indians. And this leads to the second major problem that they were facing. This infrastructure was desperately needed because India, upon independence in 1947, faced shortages of almost everything but especially food. By the late 1940s, about 150 million Indians had to receive food directly from the government, with each person receiving only 1200 calories per day, which is just enough to survive. But why did India face such massive shortages? When the British took control over the Indian subcontinent, innovation practically stopped in India. This is because when there was a problem that needed solving, the new Indian leaders would simply hire more people to do the work because India had such a large population. At the same time, Western Europe, North America and Japan focused on machinery to solve problems. As a result, these regions innovated in better machines so that each worker would be more productive. Over time, these machines became so good that they were more effective than the large labor force of India, and eventually, Indian industry was surpassed by European, North American, and Japanese industries. In essence, India was still stuck in the 18th and 19th century because it didn't innovate under colonial rule. And then India was dragged into World War II by the British, and the rulers of the colony declared that India wasn't allowed to build new factories unless those factories supported the war. And so, for six years, India didn't produce more products. At the same time, India gained 42 million new people. These people needed products. But with no new factories being set up to sell those products, India faced a shortage. In addition, 
Bad weather in the 1940s caused many harvests to fail, resulting in a starving population. With a severe lack of even the most basic products, how could India solve their problems? Well, the solution seemed simple. If you have a shortage of goods, you need to produce more goods. And the best way to produce more goods is to invest in machines. And so India decided to go on a campaign of industrialization. But how are they going to manage industrialization for 360 million Indians? The system they chose was a combination of capitalism and a command economy, also often referred to as Soviet-style communism. A command economy is a system where the government takes control over most aspects of the economy, with the government planning nearly all aspects of the economy from supply lines to where factories should be built to what products should be produced. Today, we know that command economies don't work. So, why did India decide to choose this system? Well, for that we need to look at the options available to India at the time. Back then, there were only three systems that had succeeded at bringing wealth to a nation. The first system was the European model, whereby a country would colonize other parts of the world and use the wealth extracted from these colonies to invest in industries in their own countries, eventually leading to a system where a small part of the empire was industrialized while the majority lived in poverty in far-off regions. India was unable to adapt this model as most of the world was already colonized and it wasn't interested in imposing this system on other people right after having gained independence themselves from that same system. So, then there was the United States model. With this model, a country would go to war with other countries to force them to open up their markets to you. This allows you to gain a lot of foreign customers every time you win a war. But India didn't have the military power to do so, and there was no country with enough customers, so 360 million Indians had work in factories. So this model couldn't be implemented either. And so the last model was the Soviet model, which managed to industrialize the nation in just a few decades. For example, in just the first 10 years, the Soviet Union produced four times more iron and steel, two and a half times more oil, seven times more electricity, and 250 times more cars. And while India was aware of a lot of the criticisms, such as the lower quality of goods and the high death toll of the people working to industrialize the nation, India's leadership believed it could industrialize without atrocities while keeping the quality of products relatively good. They were able to point towards Latin American countries during the Great Depression in the 1930s, as an example of economic growth through government control, where many Latin American countries had industrialized during the Great Depression as a way to end the economic crisis in their country. So from the perspective of the Indian leadership in 1947, this type of economic management seemed far more effective than capitalism or imperialism. And they argued that the poverty of India was because the British squandered India's resources. So if the government was in charge of economic management, then they would be able to make sure that the wealth of the nation would be shared with the poorest people of the nation, not just the rich. And so, presented with these three options, 
India chose to adopt the Soviet model. But it couldn't go as far with the Soviet model as the leaders wanted to. This is because the Indian elites who owned industries or ruled over the princely states wanted to keep their power. If the central government would take over factories, they would lose their power. This is common throughout modern India's history. The country is so large and has so many different peoples living within its borders that any decision taken by any of the governments immediately comes into conflict with one of these other groups of people. And so India's democracy is filled with lobbyists and infighting who fight over almost everything. And as a result, the compromises often make no sense. In this case, for example, where they had to decide how the economy would be managed, they made a compromise where India would have a system that incorporated aspects from socialism and capitalism. Such a system can be very effective. Today, the countries with the healthiest, happiest and best educated people use the best part of socialism and capitalism, called social democracy. India, however, decided to take the worst parts of each system. The state would take direct ownership of the military industry, atomic energy and railways. Existing businesses were allowed, however, the government was the only one allowed to set up new businesses in vital sectors, such as coal mining, iron and steel production, aircraft manufacturing, shipbuilding, telecommunications and the mining industry. Over time, businesses in this industry would be taken over by the government. And this was one of the worst decisions they could have taken. Because a bunch of government officials are simply incapable of managing an economy effectively in a country the size of India. Humans are simply not intelligent enough for a centrally planned economy. Under a healthy capitalist system, however, thousands of businesses have to compete with each other. When a business lags behind the other businesses, it won't make a profit and will go bankrupt. This system assures that the most efficient businesses will remain in business and thus creates an incentive for companies to make better products at less of a price. But when a single government manages all these thousands of businesses, there is no process by which inefficient businesses are replaced with more efficient ones. And so the businesses run by governments are usually far less efficient than businesses owned by people. And the types of businesses that were supposed to be run by the government are the most important businesses in a country. For example, the iron and steel industries are of vital importance to growing the economy. New machines need steel. Factories are often made from steel. Vehicles use a steel frame. And steel is just as important to regular people. If you look around you right now, almost everything you see requires steel. Support for the building you live in, the case in your computer, and the ship, train or vehicle bringing the products to the store. And so, to grow your economy, you need access to steel. But, because the government took control of the vital industries, it was making sure that the industries needed to grow your economy would also be run the least efficiently. To give an example of such inefficiency, the Bocaro steel mill is one of the major steel producers in India. It was built with the help of the Soviets, but the Soviet designs often couldn't be used for Indian manufacturing. 
it often broke down, and the quality of the products it did produce was really, really low. And something similar was happening in almost every business owned by the Indian government. But on the other side, the capitalist parts of the Indian economy were flawed as well. As mentioned earlier, a healthy capitalist system requires competition, so businesses which don't innovate will go bankrupt. In India, however, businesses were often protected from competition. If you wanted to set up a new business in India, you needed a license. Receiving such a license would often take years. In those years, other businesses will have looked at your license application and have prepared for your arrival. By the time your facility is finally able to produce new products, your competitors will have already made those same products and cornered the market. Meaning that if you invested in India, you would likely not earn any profit. So, the capitalist system was unhealthy, without competition, and the rich and powerful were able to keep in power without needing to improve their operations. So in summary, the Indian economy lacked competition, which in turn meant that it was less innovative. It kept out foreign investors and knowledge, which in turn meant it didn't have as much access to the more advanced machinery and equipment of the developed world. And the basic products needed to create new factories, machines and equipment were managed in an inefficient way. And as a result, India took some of the worst aspects of both systems. But, as a wise man once said, you should never half-ass two things, but whole-ass one thing. And so India's economy in the 1940s and 50s grew slowly. So slowly, in fact, that India decided to ask for foreign aid. But, because India used aspects of a Soviet economy and a Western economy, it maintained a good relationship with both sides of the Cold War. India used this to their advantage by taking money from both sides. By the 1950s, foreign aid had become the largest source of investment in India. And yet, the economy still grew slowly. So slowly that the leaders realized that they were doing a poor job. They concluded that the reason India's economy didn't grow fast enough was because the government didn't have enough control over the economy. And so, existing businesses were taken over by the government, and private businesses were allowed in fewer and fewer industries. And through the late 50s and early 60s, the Indian government became more and more involved in the economic management of the country. But, of course, using a failing system more doesn't change the fact it was a failing system. And the more they took control, the less efficient the economy was run, and the more foreign aid the government asked for. By the 1960s, India's economy had become insignificant in world affairs. For example, in 1955 India produced nearly 46% of all exported peanut oil in the world. By 1960, this was only 1%. The world no longer wanted to put Indian nuts in their mouths. India's failure to modernize its economy meant that other countries could sell the same products for a lower price. India was caught in a cycle. The more it took control of the economy, the less efficient it became, and the more customers it started losing abroad, the less the government would earn in taxes, and the more it relied on foreign aid, 
and the more India had to take control over the economy to use this foreign aid, becoming even less efficient, losing even more customers, etc. And so India was doomed from the start with a culture which didn't put an emphasis on innovation, the British military departure which meant India's regions could split apart, a government which controlled the fundamental aspects of economic growth, and a capitalism that did not allow for healthy competition. So it was now clear that the economic system India used was a broken system that simply couldn't work. And so, independence from the British resulted in becoming dependent on the Soviet Union and the United States to keep their economy afloat. And by now there were other countries that were far more successful. Western Europe and Japan recovered quickly after World War II, while countries like South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore rapidly grew their economy. The people in these parts of the world were becoming rich at a much faster speed than India was, and they were capitalist nations. So clearly, government control of the economy was not an effective way to bring prosperity to the country, and so the USA saw an opportunity to promote capitalism in India. They threatened to reduce the amount of foreign aid they would send to India unless India opened up its markets to US companies. India needed that foreign aid to buy food every time a bad monsoon damaged their crop. This time, however, the USA wanted to sell agricultural tools to India. At the time, the USA had one of the best agricultural industries in the world, and it could export its knowledge, technology and machines to India with hundreds of millions of farmers each of which was a potential customer. And if those farmers became richer, they would be able to purchase more US goods, earning the USA even more profits. And so India had a choice. They could either starve or they could abandon a failing system in favor of more capitalism. India chose to become slightly more capitalist. They stopped centrally planning their economy. They sold government-owned businesses. The system of licenses was reduced, farmers were given grants to invest in more efficient farms, new infrastructure was built, and India allowed foreign companies to set up new businesses with Indian companies, where the Indian and foreign company each owned the new business called a joint venture. This strategy was successful. It brought valuable knowledge and skills to the country, and new factories were built across India to produce luxury goods, such as radios, fridges, processed food, and more. And, for the first time since independence, India, a country with some of the most fertile farmland in the world, was finally able to feed its own people reliably. This strategy was clearly a success, and the Indian government wanted more of this success. The government still controlled certain important industries. So, the leaders decided to sell these vital products, such as steel and electricity, at a very low price. The government wouldn't earn any money from it, but people could set up new businesses at a much lower cost. As a result, new enterprises were created across India. By the late 1960s, about 80% of India's economy was privately owned and the economy grew by around 7% per year. At the time, that type of growth for a large country like India was unheard of. 
But even in the 1960s, India still struggled to provide enough food and products for everyone in the country, however. But at least now, India was finally moving in the right direction and might become a developed country within the next 100 years or so. With economic growth finally achieved, India's next goal was to become as self-sufficient as possible. This means that India would try to produce every type of product the Indians wanted to buy. The reason for such a policy was the belief that if a country could produce what they needed themselves, then other countries can never take advantage of them. To give a recent example, the United Kingdom does not provide enough food for its own people. So the UK imports food from other countries, particularly countries from the European Union. When the UK decided to leave the Union, it faced the problem that the country might not be able to get enough food. Thus, the EU had significant leverage over the UK. India was afraid of something similar happening to them and that India would once again become a colony of a foreign nation if those other nations had too much influence over India. And so India was going to try to produce as much as they could themselves, so that they would become a strong independent country who needs no trade partner. But the problem with this approach is that certain countries are naturally good and bad at certain things. For example, Japan has lots of mountains, which makes it impossible for them to grow enough food. Japan will therefore never have a strong agriculture. But it does have a lot of coastlines, which means that wherever you build a factory, you will have a port nearby. As a result, Japan is naturally good at transporting heavy products such as cars or electronics across the world because no matter where in Japan you are, the coast is always nearby and transporting goods with cargo ships is cheap. So Japan instead uses a process called comparative advantage. This is a system in which a country focuses on things they are good at and then sell those products for a large profit to buy the things they can't produce themselves. So Japan sells what they are good at such as cars, adult tentacle entertainment and integrated circuits, while it buys fuel, machinery and food. And as a result, Japan is far richer by focusing on certain goods than they would be trying to create everything they needed themselves. And so, the choice of India to try to build everything themselves meant that the country wasn't focusing on certain things they were good at. As a result, it was usually cheaper to buy products from other countries, because those countries had focused on just a few industries and could sell the same products at a lower price than India could. And as a result, almost nobody wanted to buy Indian goods by the 1960s and 70s. Except inside India itself. This is because India made it illegal for anyone to import goods that could theoretically be made in India, regardless of whether it was actually being produced in India or not. So if, for example, you owned a factory and you needed to buy parts from abroad, you would either have to pay a very high tax on those products, or you would have to try to make them yourself. As a result, India's industry remained very inefficient, even though the economy was finally starting to grow significantly. But to show the mismanagement in concrete terms, instead of abstract examples, let's look at India's agriculture. So what 
could India have done instead to see the same levels of economic growth as Taiwan, China or Ireland? Well, there are some things India is better at than most countries. India has many rivers, frequent rains and tropical climates. This makes it a perfect location for growing certain types of crops such as rice and spices. In fact, India has the most farmland of any country in the world. India could therefore have focused on growing the agricultural sectors for such luxury products to sell them for a high profit to colder and richer countries such as the West, the Soviet bloc or Japan. Indian farmers couldn't earn a profit because the elites of the country were in control of the wholesalers. These wholesalers were often the only ones willing to buy someone's harvest. And there was usually only one wholesale to whom a farmer could sell. That meant that the farmer had to accept whatever price this one wholesale was giving to them or not sell anything at all. India could have broken up the wholesalers so that they would have to compete with each other. As a result, farmers would have a choice to which wholesaler they would sell their crops and thus demand a higher price for their produce. This would have meant that farmers would earn more money to grade their harvest. As a result, they would invest in better equipment, machines and fertilizer to increase their output because that would have meant more money for them and their families. The government could then have helped the farmers by investing in factories making fertilizer, possibly with the help of foreign experts who had experience in industrialized agriculture such as in Europe and North America. It could have set up universities and vocational schools where people could learn about better and more efficient agricultural techniques eventually creating research facilities where Indian researchers would develop better tools and develop better seeds, such as plants immune to droughts or flooding, and able to produce more food per square meter. Eventually, India could have become the largest producer of food in the world, exporting a variety of tropical fruits, flowers, spices and rice across the world. The profits from agriculture would have allowed India to invest in other industries so the country could have a diverse economy focusing on multiple industries. The same way other developed countries have done, focusing on a couple of industries to use those products to buy the things it didn't produce itself. Instead, countries like the Philippines and Mexico were the ones focusing on better seeds for tropical climates. And by the 1960s, India was buying seeds from these countries because it failed to create its own research facilities. And even to this day, Indian farmers are often buying seeds from foreign companies, despite India being one of the most suitable locations to research tropical agriculture due to the large amount of farmland, farmers and frequent harsh weather conditions. One of the many, many failed opportunities Indian leaders squandered with ineffective policies. And when a country squanders opportunities, there are always foreign countries willing to exploit you. While India had enough food for everyone by the 1960s, it is only by the 1970s that India was finally able to properly feed their own people. But the rich elites did not like this new system. They were afraid that farmers might demand higher prices, thus cutting into their profits. 
and they were afraid that foreign businesses could produce products cheaper, thus cutting into their profits. And so the elites put in place during colonization kept being a problem India's leaders had to deal with. As a result, the government had to keep control over various parts of the economy so that these elites could use this control to their own benefit. As a result, India's more open economy was still limited. India's economy still lacked a healthy competition between businesses. Its infrastructure, while improving, was still poor. And the government did not provide a good safety net on which people who failed in this system could try again. All of these are effective measures to grow your economy, but was blocked by many of the elites who feared it would cut into their profits. And to this day, some of the most powerful people in India use their influence to block reasonable economic policies in order to enrich themselves. And the opening up of India is still taking place to this very day. So while countries like China or South Korea opened to the outside world in just a few years, India has spent the last 60 years opening up. And to this day, India is still relatively closed off to the outside world, and many investors choose to do business in another, more open country instead. And most of the time, India's reforms are forced upon it. From the famines to foreign aid, it's usually the outside world demanding India opens its country for freer and open business. Because India has hundreds of millions of potential customers. And in the 1980s, another change occurred. The breakup of the Soviet Union. You see, India tried to remain friends with both the Western countries and the Soviet countries. But by the 1980s, the Soviet economies were far weaker than the Western economies. As a result, the Soviet Union decided to focus on internal problems. But for India, this was a major problem. Because the Soviet Union decided to stop sending so much money to India and instead keep that money for their own people. The USA saw this and also decided to keep most of the money for themselves now that they didn't need to compete with the Soviets anymore. And now the Indian government faced the problem that they wouldn't have enough money anymore. And then, a few years later, the Soviet Union collapsed entirely. This collapse was a disaster for the former Soviet countries and its people became significantly poorer. And because the people were poorer, they didn't buy as many Indian products anymore. And so Indian businesses suffered from this collapse as well. India had a simple solution. If we lose customers in the former Soviet countries, we will simply do more business with Western countries. After all, the economies of the West were far larger than the economy of the Soviet Union and its allies. And so India shifted more towards the West. At the same time, however, China also pivoted to the West. And just like the Soviet Union and India, China too abandoned the disastrous policy of a command economy in favor of capitalism. China opened up quickly to the outside world and focused their economy on manufactured goods, with factories opening across China. India saw the billions of dollars invested into China and wanted the same thing. But India had a problem. Industry accounted for only 27% of the Indian economy, while it accounted for 45% in China's economy. This meant that China had far better facilities for factories than India had. Plus, 
India's industry was controlled by the elites and thus protected from foreign investment. India decided to focus on services instead, such as customer service, administration and IT. India has a large population of English speakers, while many of the richest countries in the world at the time spoke English. And so it began selling cheap services to countries like the USA, Canada, New Zealand, etc. Its industry, however, would keep focusing on selling to other Indians. And in the 1990s, India was once again forced to open its markets even further by an outside force, when it was sued at the court of the World Trade Organization. This court ruled that India created unfair competition by protecting its own businesses with high tariffs. So if you wanted to buy a product from abroad, costing, let's say, 100 rupees, there was usually a high tax on it going up to 400%. This meant that the 100 rupee product now becomes 500 rupees. So most Indians decided to buy Indian products, which was more expensive than the 100 rupees, but cheaper than the 500 one after taxes. The court decided that this was illegal, and India had to reduce its tariffs on a large range of products. This was very advantageous for Indian businesses, because most of them needed parts from other countries to produce their own products. And as foreign parts became cheaper, Indian products became cheaper. And as Indian products became cheaper, more people started to buy them. As a result, Indians became richer because India was once again forced to make good economic policy. And so the modern Indian economy has its foundations in the 80s and 90s. An economy focusing on exporting food and services while selling manufactured goods to other Indians. While globalization would not be an Indian priority. As a result, India's growth is smaller than those of other countries which did embrace globalization, such as Vietnam or China. But it also doesn't suffer as much during worldwide economic crises, causing India to have steady growth while having suffered only three recessions in its entire history. Today's India is a relatively stable country. While it doesn't see the enormous economic growth rates of China, it's still growing at a steady pace of around 6% per year, and its people are becoming richer at a steady rate. The government has managed various aspects quite well in recent decades. It doesn't have a lot of debt, it doesn't spend too much, and has large reserves of money should a crisis ever occur in India. India keeps slowly opening up to the world, and investments in the Indian economy are growing. But it also faces many problems it needs to solve if it wants to keep up this growth. Its education system doesn't properly educate, with only 55% of 10-year-olds able to read and understand a simple story. Many people do not receive a healthy meal on a daily basis, with nearly half of all childhood deaths caused by droughts. Its financial systems, such as banks, are in a poor state. But banks are also some of the biggest investors in an economy, so unhealthy banks means fewer investments. Foreign companies still find it very difficult to do business in India and prefer doing business in Bangladesh or Vietnam, and the Indian healthcare system is unable to care for all its people. 
And as more and more developing countries are implementing healthy economic policies in the 21st century, it means that more and more countries across the world will develop their own industries. This will cause more competition. And whether India will be able to compete with countries that are far better managed remains uncertain. India will likely not become a superpower within the next decade. Yet, most of us will probably live to see a day where India will become a dominant power in the world. It is expected that by 2050, India will overtake the USA in economic power, becoming the second largest economy in the world right behind China. And as long as the Indian government does not make major mistakes like it has done in the past, this outlook seems very likely. And a world with India as one of three superpowers seems likely. If you like this video, then please subscribe and don't forget to abuse the like button. If you want to vote on what video we should work on next, you can do so in the poll in the description. This was Avery from History Scope. Thank you for watching.